excited to dig in. Let me go ahead and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have given us in these chapters. All of these chapters have been so um, impactful. I feel like there's something particularly special about uh, chapter 40 and us getting this huge view of who you are. And then we have chapter 42 where we get this beautiful picture of our of our Savior, and we have mixed into continually dis- continual descriptions of Israel's stubbornness and wickedness and idolatry. You continue to weave in these reminders of your lavish grace to those who are undeserving. And of course, Lord, we see ourselves in Israel's shoes again and again. And I pray that as we walk through these chapters that we are reminded that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are over all things, because certainly our news networks aren't telling us that, and our social media feeds aren't telling us that. Um, I pray that we would see Jesus more clearly and more importantly, that we would see how we are and aren't reflecting his character in in our world. And I pray that you would just remind us of your grace and that you would remind us of your patience with us and your love for us. And again, that we would reflect that in the way we treat those that you've placed in our lives. And God, we just uh, we give you this time. Holy Spirit, guide us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond. Because we acknowledge that there's nothing, nothing we can really understand and see apart from your supernatural work. And so we ask for you to do that among us this morning. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, I have been looking forward to this week since the day that God laid it on my heart to teach through the book of Isaiah. Because chapter 40 has been my favorite chapter in the whole entire Bible for as far back as I can remember. And we are finally here. I find that I often need to be reminded how big and majestic God is. You guys ever find yourselves just needing that reminder? Like I said a few weeks ago, our circumstances are always talking. And one of the ways I have found to talk back that's really effective is to immerse myself in the bigness of God. And for me, kind of the one-stop shop, the place that I can always go, is Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, I remember when, on my way here, I was thinking back to when COVID came on scene. Remember that? There was no toilet paper. There was no chicken. You know, people wouldn't even share the same sidewalk. You'd, like, cross the road. And, man, that was crazy. And I just remember in those, those early days when just so struck with fear of the unknown. None of us had ever, this is this uncharted territory. And I just remember day after day after day going to Isaiah chapter 40 and just being reminded that God is still God and that that means something. So super excited to be there today. Now, in terms of how we've been tracking along, Isaiah 40 also represents a huge turning point in the book of Isaiah. And I Told you that last week, kind of prepped you for it, and um, Isaiah 39 looks ahead to uh, the Babylonian invasion. By chapter 40, it has already happened. The people have been exiled. Finally, all the judgment that Isaiah has been describing in the first 39 chapters is going to start to give way to the salvation that he has also been weaving in. Um, in those in those chapters, because of course, judgment never has the final word for the people of God, never. And so we're finally getting into um, the part of the book of Isaiah. There's still going to be there's still going to be some downers, but hope is going to be the main um, the main focus of of the last remaining chapters of the prophecy. 
All right, well, let's go ahead and start. Chapter 40, verse 1. Starts out with comfort. Finally. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, we ought to read that and think, well, how has her iniquity been pardoned? And, of course, I'm going to tell you, Isaiah says, keep reading. (laughs) He doesn't tell us there. He just says it has. He just says it has. Verse 3, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was was saying, cry out. And another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. What a good word for these people who had been trusting in people, (laughs) right? They've been trusting in Egypt. They've been trusting in Assyria. They've been trusting in people, and God says, look, You should have been trusting in my word the whole time because it's the one thing that doesn't fade. It's the one thing that lasts forever. Verse 9, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. If you have a, a different translation, it says, behold. Behold is your God. Title of the study, right from right right there. See, the Lord your God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. All right, let's pause there. God is coming. God is coming. He is returning to Zion, and it is a big deal. In those days when a king or important dignitary would come into a city, oftentimes an entire new road would be built. And that's what's pictured there in verses uh, verses 3 through 5. Now, this is not just any king. This is Yahweh. This is the king. And his presence is transforming. He comes into an impassable wilderness, and now it is passable. He comes into what is a desolate area, and it is no longer desolate. You get this picture of as Yahweh is coming in, the, 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 the very ground on which he walks is being transformed. And notice that little reminder in verse 5 that this isn't just for Israel. And I love that Isaiah keeps giving us these reminders. He says, all humanity together will see it. Remember, all the way back in chapter 2, he made it really clear this whole, this whole deal is for the nations, not just for Israel. It's for the nations of the world. Verses 9 through 11 are really significant because this is where the word gospel ultimately comes from. Now, we are gospel people. We're gospel-centered. We're gospel-driven. we got gospel music, gospel, 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 gospel. And, and you wonder where that comes from. Well, it comes from, in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the first time you see the word gospel is here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Zion, herald of good news. Jerusalem, herald of good news. And what, what are they announcing? What is the good news? Behold your God. He's here. He's back. He's come. And look at how he's described. I love this. In verse 10, he's described as this strong warrior, this strong warrior God. But then in verse 11, right after that, he's pictured as a tender, loving shepherd. 
And if you have walked through the Gospels, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you see the same thing. Over and over again, the power and the might and the strength of Christ is on display. And over and over and over again, the tenderness and the shepherd-like qualities of Christ are on display. And so you have both. You have both there. Let's move on. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon cedars are not enough for fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as empty nothingness. That's not saying that he doesn't care about the nations. He's talking about size, dimension. In relation to God, the nations are itty-bitty, itty-bitty. And of course, he's saying that to people who have been deported by one of these nations that sure does look big and sure does look powerful and sure does look mighty. And God's saying, compared to me, they are nothing. Babylon is nothing. Assyria is nothing. None of these nations can even compare. Verse 18, really important question. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. But of course, it will rot and it will fall over, right? (laughs) Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They're barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. That's hearkening back to verse 7, right? Verse 25, very similar to the question we saw in verse 18. He, He had asked in verse 18, with whom will you compare God? And here we have again, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, asked the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls them by name because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. All right, so what Isaiah is displaying here for us is God is the incomparable creator. He's the creator. That's the focus of all of these verses that I just read. Now, If you were to see a new class offered on Wednesday nights here at Bell Shoals Church or pretty much any church, any church anywhere, and it was called Creation 101, as post-enlightenment, modern Christians, you would immediately assume that this class would be largely taken up with science. You would expect the teacher to spend a great deal of time pushing back against evolutionary theories of the origin of the universe and presenting a solid case for intelligent design. And while I think such a class would be very worthwhile, I'm actually thankful to have sat through many classes like that. A focus on science would miss the whole point of the creation narrative. Moses wasn't the least bit concerned with disproving evolution or helping us navigate the fossil records. Wasn't a category for him. Not, not, not even on the radar at all. <laughs> the 
creation narrative was written as a polemic or an attack against the prevailing cosmologies of ancient Mesopotamia. Its purpose is to demonstrate how the God of Israel is superior to the gods of the surrounding nations. It's a powerful answer to the question, what makes the God of Israel special? What makes the God of Israel worthy of our exclusive worship? So the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not that evolution is whack science, though I think you can draw that conclusion from it. But the point, the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is the supremacy, authority, and transcendence of Yahweh who alone is worthy of worship. And if you miss that, I don't care how many scientific facts you know, I don't care how well you can stand in front of a group and defend intelligent design, I don't care. If you miss that, if you miss the fact that Yahweh is the king and Lord of all, that he alone is worthy of worship, then you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. And what I love about these verses in Isaiah 4, you're thinking, why, why is she talking about Genesis 1 and 2 again? <laughs> what I love about these verses from Isaiah 40 is that they show us the proper response, the proper application of the creation narrative. This is the intended takeaway. Isaiah understood what, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is supposed to do to a person. It's supposed to invoke a deep sense of awe that leads to wholehearted allegiance and rock-solid trust. That central question, to who will you compare me? We're supposed to read Genesis 1 and 2 and with our jaws to the floor say, oh my word, nobody. <laughs> nobody compares with this God. We're going to see as we move on that worshiping idols was a huge temptation, not just for the Gentile world, but for Israel, because of course, they are now living among a Gentile community in Babylon, right? Another huge temptation was the worship of stars, which is why we have verse 26. In verses 20, 19 and 20, God says, idols rot and fall over. And in verse 26, he says, the stars were created. So why would you worship them? Why would you worship them? Let's move on, verse 27. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There's no limit to his understanding. And here's the, the Hobby Lobby wall art. You ready? He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Now, I want you to look back. What two words did chapter 40 begin with? Comfort. Comfort, comfort. And that is exactly how it ends, with comfort. Verse 27 is really important because it gives us some insight into the people's frame of mind. Remember, they were exiled in Babylon. And I told you last week, people never, nations did not recover from exile. You didn't back, bounce back from that. The nation was 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 dead. No one would have ever imagined. They didn't have a category for returning to the land. They didn't have a category for that. And so when they say in verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord, my claim is ignored by my God, you've got to have a little bit of empathy for these people. Here they are. Babylon has overtaken them. They are exiles in a foreign land. And so their feelings are valid. <laughs> I mean, we, we ought to be able to understand why they felt abandoned. 
But of course, those feelings, while valid, needed to be sifted through what's true about God and what God has said about their future. Their psychology needed to be shaped by sound theology. And the same thing is true of every person in this room. There's a lot of Christians that'll get up and they'll be like, psychology, stupid. You know, and like, they all diss on therapy and everything. I'm like, good grief. Thank God for therapy. Amen? Emotions matter. Feelings matter. You find yourself, quote unquote, in exile somewhere, and it's okay to say, my way seems hidden from the Lord. And it's okay to sit with a friend and look at them and say, man, I get it. That, that makes so much sense you feel that way. We're always about the business of shaping our psychology with sound theology. We always need to be reminded of who God is, because that's where all true comfort is found, right? Verse 28 makes it ever so clear that God is powerful, but it gets even better than that, because in verse 29, we see that he doesn't just keep that power to himself. He gives it away. And the way we reach out and take it is in verse 31, those who trust in the Lord. Now, your translation might say wait on the Lord. Your translation might say hope in the Lord because that Hebrew word that's used there encompasses all of those those ideas, trusting, waiting, hoping. And when we trust slash wait slash hope, In his salvation, we go from stumbling and falling to soaring, running, and walking. And don't you just love that walking is just fine? It's just like more than fine. Because some of our feet hurt, you know? Spiritually speaking, you just, your feet hurt. And it's good to know it's okay to walk. (laughs) 41. Verse 1, be silent before me, coasts and islands. Any reference to coasts and islands is always referring to the Gentile nations. And let peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them testify. Let's come together for the trial. All right, so we've got a court scene here. And the reason for the trial is that the people, in spite of what's been communicated, in spite of what seems so clear, They don't seem to recognize that God alone is worthy of their exclusive worship. Now, the Gentile nations obviously don't recognize it, but the real problem is, we're going to see through here, even God's people, Israel is struggling to recognize this. Verse 2, who has stirred up someone from the east? In righteousness, he calls him to serve. The Lord hands nations over to him, and he subdues kings. He, Yahweh, makes them like dust with his sword, like wind-driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them, going on safely, hardly touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I have, says the Lord. I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. All right, so that's someone from the east. Verse 2, Isaiah is vague enough that we can actually insert a few ideas there. Um, It could be Abraham, it could be Joshua, or it could be Cyrus, who you'll see referenced a little later on. All of those, I mean, every Hebrew scholar seems to have a little bit of different opinion. Take your pick. Which one do you like? Put it in there. The point is that all authority and rule in world events lies in the hands of God. All empires rise and fall at his discretion. You would think that this reality would compel the people to worship him and him alone, but that is not what happens. The people turn to idols, and that's what we see in verse 5. It says, Coasts and islands see and are afraid. The whole earth trembles. They approach and arrive. Each one helps the other and says to another, Take courage. The craftsman encourages the metal worker, and the one who flattens with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. 
and idols being made here, and he's saying, it is good. He fastens it with nails so that it will not fall over, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. All right, so it's easy for us. Look at verse 24. Oh, let me, let's skip down and read verse 20. We haven't read that yet. Verse 21. We're jumping around a lot because there's no way we can cover eight chapters, right? Submit your case, says the Lord. Present your argument, says Jacob's king. Let them come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events so we may reflect on them and know the outcome or tell us the future. Tell us the coming events. Then we will know that you are God. So he's kind of mocking the idols of the nations that they've crafted. Let, let them tell us the future. Let them, let them do what I've done. Indeed, do something good or bad. Do something. Do anything. (laughs) Then we will be in awe and see it. And he says, look. Look, you idols. You are nothing. And your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you is detestable. Now, that last verse there, verse 24. It is really easy for us to apply to statue idols made of wood and metal like they had in Isaiah's day. It is much harder to say about the idols of our day. Much harder to look at the idols of our day and say, you are nothing, you are worthless. Because the idols of our day are wealth, power, social and or political influence, safety, health, control, Those don't feel all that worthless, do they? In fact, they feel essential. How else are we supposed to make it in this crazy, scary world? And God's over here saying, what do you mean how else are you supposed to make it in this world? I made the world. I can take care of you. And we have to move on to other passages, but I took you to those verses because... The absurdity of turning to idols is a major theme in chapters 40 through 48. Takes up most of chapter 44, which we're not going to cover. We'll see it again towards the end. The idolatry of both Israel and the Gentile world is really bad news. It is a focal point of this passage. But do you think Isaiah is going to leave us here? No. We already, I read a glimpse of, a glimpse of, of hope. In verses 8 through 10, and in chapter 42, we get an even bigger dose of it, all right? In chapter 42, Isaiah presents us with God's remedy for this problem of idolatry, and his remedy is the servant. It's the servant, so let's go ahead and read about him. Chapter 42, verse 1, this is my servant, I strengthen him, this is my chosen one, I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him, he will bring justice To the nations. He will not cry or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his destruction. All right, in those first four verses, we see the character of this servant. Now, we're going to have to wait for the specific identity of the servant. We can make guesses, all right? But let's see what he says about the character of this servant. He is strengthened, chosen, delighted in by God. He's filled with God's spirit. Now, you might expect someone so highly favored and so gifted to be showy and loud and commanding. But according to verse 2, this servant has a very quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening ministry. He will not cry or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. According to verse 3, he is gentle and sensitive. 
He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. So he responds rightly. And no one is too insignificant. No one is too far gone for him to serve. His mission is to establish justice, to set things right, the way God intends for them to be. And he won't stop until that mission is accomplished. And just know, justice is justice for the oppressed. Right? That was one of the big um, criticisms at the beginning, the first five chapters, is that the leaders of Israel were overlooking the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. So that's a huge part of, of what this servant is coming, is coming to restore. I want you to take a look at the very last discussion question on your listening guide. It's on the back of that listening guide. Final question. It says, in our increasingly polarized culture, how can we as Christ followers reflect Christ's quiet, unaggressive, and tender ministry to the world? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that for you. You can discuss it afterwards. But that is a really, 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 Important question, because a good number of Christians today won't just break a bruised reed. They will grind it to a pulp and throw it in the trash if it doesn't conform to their particular political view. Many Christians today won't simply snuff out a smoldering wick. They will drown and suffocate that thing to death if it dares to have an opinion that differs from their own. And of course, we are have stuffed ourselves in our own little echo chambers. We watch, we watch one news network, and that social media algorithm has, has made it to where the only things that show up on our feeds are things that reinforce what we already think is true. And we only hang out with people like us because we don't like anybody else. And so, like, our opinions are never challenged, <laughs> and we're just angry all the time. Ladies, if we do not reflect the tender, compassionate character of Jesus, particularly among those who aren't like us, we have lost our way. Now, people will respond, well, Jesus got angry. Yes, he did. He did get angry. And who did he get angry at? Church people. He didn't get angry at the lost. He didn't get angry at the sinners. He didn't get angry at the liberals. He got angry at the zealous, self-righteous, conservative church people who couldn't see beyond the letter of the law to an actual human soul to save their life. greatest apologetic for the world today is a Christian who actually reflects the character of Christ. And you know why it's the greatest apologetic? It is so stinking rare. The entire world is angry right now. The entire world is so angry. And do you know that all our social media platform, all big media, the, that whole economy is dependent on keeping us angry. So the whole world is angry, big media is feeding it because it gets them more money. Let's be different. <laughs> Let's be the people that aren't angry. Let's show them the love and the tenderness and the meekness of Jesus. The next few verses elaborate on the servant's mission. Here God is speaking not just about the servant, but to the servant. Verse 5, this is what God, the Lord, says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those sitting in darkness 
from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Past events have indeed happened. Now I declare new events. I announce them to you before they occur. A couple things I want to point out from that. First of all, the servant who Isaiah still has not clearly identified. He's going to get more more detailed as as the, the prophecy goes on. But we do know that this servant is essential, or he's central to God's covenant purposes. That phrase in verse 6, a light to the nations, is a very significant metaphor for salvation. And so whoever this servant is, he is going to bring salvation to the whole world. Now skip down to verse 18. Listen, you deaf. Look, you blind, so that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Now, I told you in your homework, it gets confusing because servant can mean different things. (laughs) Obviously, speaking about a different servant here, because this servant is deaf and blind. He says, uh, who is blind but my servant, or deaf like my messenger I'm sending? Who is blind like my dedicated one, or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things, you pay no attention Though his ears are open, he does not listen. Let's see. I'll keep reading. Because of his righteousness, the Lord was pleased to magnify his instruction and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in holes or imprisoned in dungeons. They become plunder with no one to rescue them and loot, with no one saying, give it back. Who among you will hear this? Let him listen and obey in the future. Who gave Jacob to the robber and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not I, the Lord? Have we not sinned against against him? And listen to this. It says, they were not willing to walk in his ways. They would not listen to his instruction. And so he poured out his furious anger and the power of war on Jacob. It surrounded him with fire, but he did not know it. It burned him, but he did not take it. To heart, And here's where we see the uniqueness of the servant, set in contrast to Israel. Again, we still don't know exactly who the servant is, but now we know who the servant described earlier in chapter 42. We know who he isn't. He isn't Israel. So now we're talking about two different servants. Because just as we saw so clearly described back in chapter 6, Israel is blind and deaf and entirely unresponsive to the word of the Lord in stark contrast to the servant we met a few verses ago who eagerly desires to fulfill the plans of the Lord. Israel was not willing to walk in his ways. Now, by now we should not be surprised that the depressing description of judgment at the end of chapter 42 is followed by what I believe to be one of the most gorgeous descriptions of God's gracious restoration in the entire prophecy. So just as we have this, and it ends with this image of fire, right? Fire is surrounding him, but he does not know it. It burns him, but he does not take it to heart. The fire of God's wrath has fallen on Judah, and then you turn the page, you turn the page, or in my Bible, you turn the page. Next chapter Listen to this. Now, this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you when you walk through the fire. The fire of his judgment. You will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I've given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Do not fear. Second time he said that. For I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory. I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. Beautiful, right? 
The hard plight of the captive is here described as passing through water and fire. But even there, under God's judgment, they can still lean on the truth of God's relentless faithfulness to save them. Now, there's a word in verse 1 that I want to spend a little time on. It's the word redeemed. Now, this is the second of 24 appearances of the word redeemed in Isaiah's prophecy. The first one was back in uh, chapter 35. So we're going to be seeing it a lot as we move through the end all the way through chapter 66. So I don't want to assume we all know what it means. All right? The Hebrew participle of that word is the technical term for next of kin. So relative, right? Next of kin. Who has the right to take his helpless relative's needs as his own. Now, we don't do this in our culture, but this was very prevalent back in the culture when this was written. The classic example would be the book of Ruth. You know, a lot of you have probably read or studied the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we see that being a kinsman redeemer, this next of kin was a right. It wasn't a duty. It wasn't something you had to do. In fact, there was actually someone closer to Ruth than Boaz. And Boaz had to go to that guy and be like, is it okay if I redeem Ruth? Because he wasn't the closest relative. And the guy was like, yeah, I'm going to pass on her, right? And so then Boaz redeems her. So we see there, it's not an obligation. You didn't have to redeem your next of kin. It was something that you went into willingly. There had to be willingness on the Redeemer's part. Otherwise, just like, again, just like Ruth relatively could pass. So when we hear God say, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, perhaps you've heard redeem means to pay a price. Well, that is true, but it's more than that. It's more than that. When he says, I have redeemed you, the implication is that he identifies as their next of kin and actually wants. He doesn't have to. And good grief, why would he? But he actually wants to shoulder their helplessness. (laughs) He wants to shoulder that in their place take on all of their needs, pay the price that he might redeem them and restore them, just like Boaz does with Ruth. Redeemer is a beautiful title that is attributed to our God and applied not just to Israel, but to you and I, to you and I. Didn't have to, wanted to take on our needs as his own. Beautiful word. Beautiful. Look at verse 14. We're still in chapter 43. It says, this is what the Lord, here it is again, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says, because of you I will send an army to Babylon and bring all of them as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships which they re- in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel your king. Now, I read that, and that's significant because it's the first time that Babylon is mentioned since chapter 39. When you have that envoy that came, and remember Hezekiah shows off his little Debbie cakes and all his toys and all those things, right? That's the last time Babylon was mentioned. And so here it's finally mentioned again, and it's not insignificant that in this mention, the overthrow of Babylon is promised. We have come a long way, baby, right? And the downfall of Babylon is a major piece of the restoration puzzle. Now, we're going to skip all the way to chapter 44, verse 24. And you have no idea how hard it was to select what we're going to study. So I just want to do it all. I want to do it all. All right, take a look at 44, 24. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, there's that title again, who formed you from the womb, says, I am the Lord who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth. So again, that reference to creation. 
who destroys the omens of the false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who confounds the wise and makes their knowledge foolishness, who conforms the message of his servant and or confirms the message of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, she will be inhabited and to the cities of Judah, they will be rebuilt. And I love this line so much. I will restore her ruins. Who says to the depths of the sea, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill my pleasure. And he says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt, and the temple, its foundations, will be laid. So does not, not only does Isaiah issue the promise that Babylon would be destroyed, but here he even specifies the guy that God is going to use to do it which is pretty incredible. It's Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is kind of an interesting choice because he didn't have a clue who God was. He was a pagan king. But you don't have to know who God is for God to know who you are, right? So God can and will use anybody he wants to bring about his plan, and that's what we see him doing with Cyrus. Now, I want you to go ahead and turn back to chapter 43 because I want us to take a look at the people's response to all this. Now, God has come to them and he has said, look, I'm going to overthrow Babylon, going to do it through Cyrus, y'all are going to return, exile's going to be over, I am your redeemer, I am your savior, all the things. And we think, woo, they're going to throw a big party, there's going to be this massive revival, Let's see what, what, what their response is. Chapter 43, verse 22. But Jacob, you have not called on me. Because Israel, you have become weary of me. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with incense. You have not brought me aromatic cane with silver or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. So of course the first contrast we saw in this week's passage is the living, breathing, all-powerful creator God versus the idols who are anything but. The second contrast is right here. And it's the faithful, promise-keeping God versus the unfaithful, promise-scorning people. And so God is back to talking about how their worship was heartless ritual. He's mentioned this a couple times before, and he mentions it again. It was so heartless that it was as if they were not making any sacrifices at all. What they desperately need is forgiveness. They need pardon. They need grace. And thankfully, that's the subject of the very next verse. Look with me at verse 25. I am the one, and this this metaphor is really beautiful. I sweep away your transgressions for my sake, and I remember your sins no more. Now, I want you to skip to the end of chapter 44 because this poem ends with a similar refrain. Chapter 44, verse 21. says, Remember these things, Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Israel, you will never be forgotten by me. Same words here. Look, I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Rejoice, heavens, for the Lord has acted. Now, I don't know about you, but I will never get tired of these descriptions of God's grace and rescue for his people. And, and we have this pattern, right? The people are terrible, and God's going to forgive them. The people are terrible, and God's going to save them. And the people are terrible, and God's going to rescue them. I mean, it's just like this, <laughs> this pattern that we've seen over and over. And the words that stand out to me here are the words remember and return. Remember these things, Jacob. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And I think those two words are really essential to our lives as believers. And there's a sense in which I think, I think it's helpful to think of 
Bible study, Bible reading, uh, all of it as, as an act of remembering. We're remembering. Every time we open our Bibles, we are, we're remembering. We're remembering what God has done. We're remembering what he has promised. We're remembering what he has said about the future. We're remembering our identity in Christ. We're remembering the good works to which we've been called. And my default and your default is to wake up in the morning to pick up our phones and to not remember a darn thing about the Lord, right? (laughs) And so we all need to think, like, what spiritual practices have we built into our lives to remember? And remembering is important because it's the remembering that leads us to the returning. We remember and we return. We remember and we return over and over and over again as we journey with Jesus. That is the rhythm of faith. Remember, return. Remember, return. Remember, return. Well, let's skip on ahead to chapter 46. We have some very, very, very good news. Babylon is a goner. Babylon is doomed. Look at verse 1. Bell crouches. Nebo cowers. Idols depicting them are consigned to beasts and cattle. The images you carry are loaded as a burden for the weary animal. The gods cower. They crouch together. They are not able to rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been sustained from the womb, carried along since birth. I will be the same until your old age, and I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. There's another contrast being drawn here. It's a showdown. We're on the streets of Babylon. And we've got Bel and Nebo in one corner. And we've got the God of Israel in the other corner. Now, Bel was the head of the Babylonian pantheon, their top god. And Nebo was Bel's son. And they are in trouble. And you know why they're in trouble? Because they cannot bear the weight of what's happening. They are unable to rescue And so what Bel and Nebo cannot do, God does effortlessly. He can bear the weight of rescue without even batting an eye. Look at verse 5. To whom will you compare me or make my equal? Who will you measure me with so that we should be like each other? Those who pour out their bags of gold and weigh out silver on scales, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they kneel and bow down to it. They lift it to their shoulder and bear it along. They set it in its place, and there it stands. It does not budge from its place. They cry out to it, but it doesn't answer. It saves no one from his trouble. Do you get the picture? Isaiah is trying to show us how absurd this is. You craft an image, and then you talk to it, and you expect it to talk back, and you expect it to save you, and you expect it to do all these things. Verse 8, remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. Unlike those idols, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. If that is not a statement on the sovereignty of God, I do not know what is. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. He's talking about Cyrus. Yes, I have spoken, and I will bring it to bout. I have planned it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you hard-hearted. Far removed from justice, I am bringing justice near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion, my splendor in Israel. So over and over and over again, God is challenging his people to place him right alongside the idols of the nations and evaluate the differences. He's like, take a good hard look. The idols cannot think or speak. God declares the end from the beginning. He speaks and it happens. The idols have no power. They actually need humans to work for them. God does whatever he pleases. Nations and rulers are at his discretion. And his plans can never be thwarted. The idols overlook injustice. They have no answers for the evil in the world. No solutions for the oppression. God works his justice and his righteousness in the world. At every point of comparison, God wins. At every point of comparison, God wins. And that is exactly what we see 
down in verse uh, chapter 47, verse 8. Skip to there. So speaking about Babylon here, he says, So now hear this lover of luxury who sits securely and says to herself, I am and there is no one else. Do you remember another one that said, I am? Does that ring a bell? Burning bush, God speaking, and declares his personal name as I am. And here you have Babylon saying, uh-uh, I am, and there is no one else. That is the spirit of Babylon, right? I will never be a widow or know the loss of children. These two things will happen to you suddenly in one day. God is speaking. The loss of children and widowhood. They will happen to you in their entirety in spite of your many sorceries and the potencies of your spells. You were secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge led you astray. You said to yourself, I am and there is no one else. But disaster will happen to you, and you will not know how to avert it, and it will fall on you, but you will be unable to ward it off. Devastation will happen to you suddenly and expectantly. And the poem goes on to continue to describe the devastation that would strike. So not only did Babylon have idols, but Babylon had become an idol in and of herself. It's a great lesson in how we become like what we worship, right? Always. Without fail. And that was ultimately what led to Babylon's demise. Now, what you might expect to follow a chapter describing the downfall of Israel's most powerful oppressor is a hymn of praise or a poem celebrating the victory. Interestingly enough, that is not what we have in chapter 48. Chapter 48 is actually kind of depressing. Contains a lot more reminders of the supremacy of God, which is awesome, but it also contains a lot of reminders of the failure of the people of Israel. It's like they don't they don't get it. They don't get it. God's done all this. God's promised all of this, and yet look at chapter forty-eight, verse one. It says, "Listen to this, house of Jacob, those who are called by the name Israel." You have descended from Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and declare the God of Israel. There's a big contrast here. But not in truth or righteousness. Skip down to verse 4. Because I know that you are stubborn and your neck is iron and your forehead bronze. Skip down to verse 8. You have never heard. You have never known. For a long time your ears have not been open, for I knew that you were very treacherous, and I knew that you were a rebel from birth. Skip down to verse 17. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you for your benefit, who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Skip down to verse 20. Leave Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with a shout. Proclaim this. Let it go out to the ends of the earth. Announce, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. But look how this all ends in verse 22. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And listen, he's not talking about Babylon there. He's talking about his own people. He's talking about his own people. And so we have the God who so graciously calls and equips and blesses and rescues. And then you have his people who remain stubborn and stiff-necked and idol-loving and opinionated and treacherous and having forfeited peace. And isn't this the great mystery of the Old Testament? You ever read the Old Testament? And you're like, oh, my word. What does God have to do to get you to, like, obey for five seconds? Right? It's like the cycle of, like, we totally screwed up, and so now we're going to trust God, and we're going to be all excited, and then we're going to, like, do our own thing again. And it's like, over and over and over and over. That's a story that plays out again and again. And, of course, if you have any abilities 
of self-assessment, you can most definitely see yourself in their story, right? We all have the same cycle, I play it out over and over and over and over, right? Now here's what's going on, big picture. Isaiah has diagnosed not one, but two conditions of the people. We're going to end with this. Number one, their first issue is their national bondage to Babylon. All right? That is problem number one. Problem number two is a little less, at least to the people, a little less obvious. And it's their spiritual bondage to sin. So problem number one, national bondage to Babylon. Problem number two would be their spiritual bondage to sin. Isaiah then goes on to describe how these conditions are going to be treated. And what we've seen this week is that the people will be delivered from their national bondage to Babylon through a guy named Cyrus. And that rescue, it's been the focal point. It's it's a sure thing. It is been described in vivid detail for us. But what we need to understand as we close this week's section is that this liberation, as wonderful as it is, and we're like, yay, Babylon is doomed, it only solves one of their problems. It only solves one of their problems. Their spiritual bondage to sin doesn't go away. According to the end of chapter 48, they are going to leave Babylon a wicked people. And so Cyrus enters the stage of history, and we're like, yay. And then he leaves the stage of history. His task, the lesser solution, is accomplished, but the greater task, this liberation from spiritual bondage to sin... That awaits an even greater servant than Cyrus, who takes center stage in your study this week as you move on into Isaiah 49 through, I think it's 55. It gets good, you guys. So good. And so you're going to get to see the servant as the suffering servant, as the redeemer, as the one who atones for sin, as the one who solves the real problem, which is not just bondage to Babylon, but bondage to sin. And so stay tuned. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Um, I know that was a lot to get through today, but good stuff. Good, good stuff. Any questions before I close it about these chapters or about something in your homework? I must be doing such a great job then. Because, you know, you read Isaiah and you're like, what in the world are we doing? Yeah. All right. Let me close us in prayer. Father, I thank you for the word you've given us today. Um, And most importantly, this reminder that you are God. And we say that so flippantly sometimes. I've been around church my entire life so when I say you're God it's just it's just what we say (laughs) and so to go to these passages and be reminded that that is a very loaded statement that the implications of the fact that you are God are so massive there's implications for the world on an international level as we look at international headlines and we we grieve the oppression, uh, we grieve wars, we grieve um, economic turmoil, we grieve all the things that we see happening on a worldwide scale. The reality that you are God has implications for that. The reality that you are God has implications for our, our country. My goodness, we just are struggling, Lord. We are struggling with what's happening. We are struggling with decisions that are being made. We are struggling with um, cultural trends and and, and shifts in worldview. We're, 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 We're having a hard time. 
figuring out how to speak truth in love, which is hard right now. And the fact that you are God has massive implications for that as well. And then, Lord, we have our own personal lives. Some, some in this room haven't even had a, a hot second to focus on international headlines because their own life is in such turmoil and, and just hard stuff going on. And the fact that you are God has massive implications for that hard stuff. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would lift us above all that stuff and that we would remember, that we would remember who you are and that in remembering, we would return. We'd remember and return, remember and return over and over and over until the day we don't have any breath left in our lungs. And then we get to return once and for all to our Savior and Lord, and we thank you for the promise of that day. We love you so much. Thank you for your word. We thank you for Isaiah. Give us eyes to see the beauty of our Savior this week in its pages, and it is in our Savior's name we pray. Amen. You got it. Do you want to say, I fly out, Lord willing, Thursday to celebrate anniversary with my husband, so I will not be here next week, but... I made a video for you, and Carolyn's already got it all, like, set up, and so um, I, will be, I will be coming to you from my living room, and so it's just, it's such a great, it's such a great lesson, so do come back for that, and then, if, and then we'll wrap the study the week after that. It'll be the last week, so good stuff, fun stuff, so, all right. <laughs>